Welcome to Constitutional Futures, a podcast series from Queen's University Belfast, examining current debates around constitutional futures on this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's, delighted to be joined today by Dr Anne Devlin. Anne is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Economic Analysis Unit of the Economic and Social Research Institute, ESRI. Her research interests include labour economics and the economics of disability, as well as a particular interest in economic inactivity in Ireland, North and South, and completed her PhD in economics at Queen's University in June 2021. And during her doctoral studies, Anne held a research internship at the Northern Ireland Assembly Research and Information Service at Stormont. Prior to joining the Institute, Anne was employed as a teaching fellow at Ulster University's Business School. In April of this year, Anne co-authored with Emer Smith, Edel Bergen and Seamus McGuinness, the research report, A North-South Comparison of Education and Training Systems, Lessons for Policy. Anne, you're very, very welcome to uh, the podcast today. Thanks very much, Colin. I'm delighted to be talking about the report. And we will be talking about that, uh, hopefully in some detail now. But I just want to start with your own background and your work. I've said something about your bio there, but just interested to know what motivated your own focus in area, your own interest in this area of work and research. Yep. Um, well, you covered lots of it, but I suppose I've always had an interest in where we live. And when I started to look at economics and started to study economics in school, I really was interested in not the economics they talk about in the news, about um, finance and things like that, but about the day-to-day, the standards of living, how people's lives are affected sort of stuff. But never when I started all this did I think I would get to do this sort of work. You know, at that time when I was studying, this type of work wasn't happening or wasn't existing. So it sort of just happened. It's just evolved as the topics of discussion and as the economy and more chat about the economy in the north and across the island um, has been evolving. It's evolved alongside that. Um, And then obviously the work of the Shared Island Unit that this research is a part of. Um, has played a big part in that and then that's where the report just came from. That's that's great and maybe now I focus on the report itself. I think one of the things that struck me is that in the report you know that this is the first of its kind and I think just for our audience here did that, 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 that fact alone surprise you? No absolutely not. I wish it surprised me. Um, when I was doing my PhD which obviously was on mostly on the north there's a complete lack of research on Northern Ireland, on the economy, on education, on the labour market and a whole range of things. You know, there's very little has been done. And that's despite the really great academics that there are here. Um, when I was studying, I would have been looking for data or looking for reports on economic economic inactivity. And I would have been reading ones about the UK. And you get halfway through and realised they weren't about the UK at all. They were about Great Britain. You know, Northern Ireland is just until fairly recently, left out in a lot of this work. Um, And I suppose it was maybe a lack of interest, I don't know. Um, So no, not surprised at all that it's the first, although I do think um, it's long, long overdue that this is happening. And it's not just the education report. The last couple of years, there's a lot of work starting to happen. Um, David Jordan and John Turner in Queen's are working with the Productivity Institute. Productivity is a huge issue for the North's economy that there's never really been looked at in depth. Um, Adele Bergen and Seamus McGuinness, my co-authors on this work that you mentioned, 
also in the last couple of years have been doing work on income standards of living across the island that sort of thing and that also first of its kind so it is it's it's definitely a growing area um but it's definitely about time and it'll hopefully have benefits for our society moving forward that this research is being done could you explain Anne, to our listeners the, the nature of the study itself and and perhaps just by way of introduction outline some of the main findings from the report Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'll try and do it briefly, but given that it's well over 80 pages at this stage, <laughs> I don't know if I'll manage that. Um, so as you said, it's research published by us at the ESRI and it's in partnership with the Department of the Taoiseach's Shared Island Unit. Um, so we're looking at similarities and differences in the education systems of Northern Ireland and Ireland, so across this island. And we're looking at primary, secondary and post-secondary education, so further education and higher education. Um, we take a, take a mixed methods approach, so we do quantitative work and qualitative work. We started off looking at data, most of which is publicly available. So um, none of this is hard to get or hard to achieve sort of work, publicly available. And we began by examining educational outcomes in the two jurisdictions um, and different sort of educational attainment, educational failure, things like that. And we also looked at how wages are impacted differently by education in the two areas. So we look at the wage premiums or the returns to education that you see on the labour market. Um, we then went on to do this qualitative work and we held a, um, we held in-depth interviews with a whole range of stakeholders, north and south, in the education space. And this is where we started to see really interesting findings. So we started to see these differences in the data, but it was impossible to know from the data why these differences were there or what exactly was happening that was causing these. But when we spoke to all these experts in the area, it started to shed some light on the findings and was very interesting. And qualitative work isn't something I um, would normally do or a lot of economists don't normally do. So it was really interesting. Um, We find big gaps in terms of educational attainment in that people in the north, we have a lot more people with low levels of attainment and in particular we have quite high proportions of people who are considered early school leavers. So when we talk about early school leavers, this is young people who are leaving without attaining an upper secondary qualification. Um, and it actually, there's a couple of different definitions of it, but it's usually about two to three times higher in the north than it is in the south. So really quite a big difference on a small island. Um, what was particularly concerning was these differences are getting worse over time. So in 2005, the proportions of people with a low attainment were quite similar in Northern Ireland and Ireland. But by 2019, there's a really big gap. And that's because it's sort of there's been no improvements in the North. But in the last 15 years, Ireland has seen really rapid improvements in the educational attainment of their young people. And that just hasn't been um, mirrored up here. Um, as I said, we then looked at wage differences across the island and how they relate to education. We find, not surprisingly, much higher um, incomes or wages in the South at all levels of education. And this was particularly interesting because we, we hear in the news them talking about education and or higher incomes, higher wages in the South. But we've seen them across the spectrum. Normally, it's put down to FDI in the high tech sectors, things like Facebook, things like Google. But we're seeing them even at the lower end of the education spectrum so it sort of says something else is going on something maybe like productivity we suggest in the report and there's I suppose more to be done in that area um, we also looked at skills development so we can do this using sort of standardized tests they're done in a whole range of countries and actually Northern Ireland and Ireland both perform very very well in these on in international terms 
you know, for the size of the country, we're punching well above our weight in both, which is great to see. But then I think it makes the poor levels of educational attainment in the North even more worrying. You know, if, if we have similar levels of skills, why are people in the South going on to achieve higher levels of educational qualifications than our people or our young people or our citizens in the North are? Um, we also looked at social disadvantage and how that impacts educational outcomes. Um, students whose parents are more educated tend to have higher educational attainment as we would have anticipated and there's a lot of literature in that area. But then we went on to the qualitative stuff and this is where we got these interesting findings chatting to the people. Um, there was two things come out in particular for me when we spoke to people and I think sort of point as to why we're seeing these differences in attainment. One is the DASH programme. So that is, if I get it right, delivering equality in schools or delivering equality of opportunity in schools in the South. And people North and South both talked really, really positively about that and about how it's impacting the children. So that seems to be one thing. We're not dealing well with in our schools in the North with social disadvantage. Um, and another thing that came up then quite a lot, which is relates to social disadvantage as well, was the continued use of academic selection in the North and the impact that has on our young people and has on our education system here. Um, and just quickly, trying to condense it all down, we also, um, we also found there's a real difference in how people view FE and HE, and that seems to maybe impact people's choices or young people's choices. Somebody called FE the bridesmaid to Hetchy being the bride, seen as sort of second, secondary in status. And um, both systems, people talked about what do we want school to do? You know, we do have these differences, but we also had a lot of similarities as well. What do we want schools to be? What do we want our young people prepared for in terms of the world or the world of work? Um, so I think that's, <laughs> that's a lot, but that's the main findings. That's that's really very helpful. I'm just interested in you referred to the Dash program and maybe some of the listeners who, who who are not perhaps aware of that. You know what specifically you think is good about that program and and why has it had such an impact? Yeah, um, so very much it seemed to be the holistic sort of wraparound approach it takes. You know, it's a very well thought out of program that touches on a lot of aspects of young people's lives. So. There are family liaison officers who work, communicate between the school and the family. Um, in situations where things mightn't have been so good previously, this would have been social workers. And then obviously families don't, don't view social workers always in a good light, whereas these family liaison people are seen in a much better, much positive way by families and the young people. Um, there's support for the core subjects, you know, for people who are struggling. But the key thing seems to be when we were talking to people is that it's very targeted towards disadvantage and the issues that children coming from socially disadvantaged backgrounds face. In the North, there is extra resources for schools in disadvantaged um, areas, but that's it. There's extra money. It's not given for anything in particular. There's not a particular programme or project. And even the Northern Ireland Audit Office, when looking at this, found that um, the Department of Education was spending a lot of money in this area, but it was hard. They couldn't evaluate it. They couldn't see if there was good value for money for the taxpayer because it was going into schools where budgets are tight. North and South, it come up a lot. You know, the resources are tight, budgets are tight, and that's obviously going to get worse going forward with the price of things. Um, but it was very much felt that then when schools got this money, they were having to use it to plug holes in their budget 
rather than being able to use maybe where they would have wanted to use it for the children who needed it most. Um, so it was just going in to solve immediate problems rather than any long-term strategic sort of um, resourcing of programmes within schools in the North. Again, the report highlights a number of areas of, of good practice on existing North-South cooperation. I wondered, you know, could you tell us what's working well at the minute and, and maybe what could be improved in terms of the way the North and the South interact now? Yep, absolutely. Um, so when we spoke to stakeholders in the interviews, one of the questions or a couple of the questions we asked them was about um, to what extent they were cooperating with their counterparts in the North or South or vice versa. Um, did they see the benefit of cooperation and did they see the benefit of increasing cooperation across the island? Um, and everybody really spoke about cooperation very, very positively. But a bit like the budget thing, it came down to resourcing and time. Um, one person said, if I have a meeting with somebody in the North, I would love to attend it. But if there's a child standing in front of me crying, that's going to take priority. So it was sort of about finding the time for the cooperation. Um, but one area that did come up time and time again as we spoke to people was SCOTINS, which is the Standing Conference on Teacher Education, North and South. Um, so they are sort of ran through the Centre for Cross-Border Studies. They do a couple of different things. Um, they run an annual conference, bringing educators across the island together. They run an exchange programme for student teachers. So they do some of their teaching practice in other jurisdiction. And they also conduct and fund research on areas sort of relevant to the profession and for relevant to teacher education. Um, so that was one thing that came up time and time again. And it's not something I think loads of people know about outside of the area. Um, but it was coming up, you know, people spoke really positively of it. It's been going on for a long time. Um, there were issues at times when the executive maybe wasn't functioning around their funding. So there were concerns about sort of the longevity of it. But um, it was definitely mentioned frequently as an area of good practice. Um, another area where there's quite a bit of cooperation is for the universities. You know, they're cooperating on an all-island basis a lot more than, say, schools are able to. Um, recently, as part of the Shared Island Initiative, the Economics Department in Queen's and Trinity have got £4 million for a sort of partnership between them on economics, history and policy, I think it is. And then there's also a lot of cooperation in the unis in, the, in medicine and health sciences, things like that there. When it comes to the schools cooperating, it always seemed to depend on just how close they were to the border. You know, much more likely for schools and border regions, schools in Belfast and Antrim or in Cork, it wasn't really seen as a priority or a key area of concern for them. Um, it came up time and time again that links where they did exist were ad hoc and generally seemed to be driven by individual people. So if they moved on or changed role, then it sort of fizzled out. So I think there's a need for something systematic to be in place that's keeping these things running. And there also is a need for there to be funding. So I spoke to somebody who was in this area of North-South education cooperation from the 1990s, and they were very concerned. At the time of the Good Friday Agreement, there was a huge, huge, huge number of cross-border projects. And they said it has just fizzled out over time. And with the lack of an executive and the lack of EU funding maybe now going forward, they were very, very concerned about what was left and how that was going to be maintained. Um, they they said funding was the issue and also a political will. They said in 1998 there was a huge political will for cross-border cooperation and work and a range of projects. 
And they just felt that that wasn't there to the same extent anymore and that that was key for driving any long-term um, cooperation north and south. That's that's really, really interesting to, to hear that in the context of sort of ongoing work around shared island initiatives. I suppose the next question is another, uh, you know, it's it's a general question that raises a broad number of issues. But I suppose one thing at the moment is that there's comparing what's happening on the island in, in the here and now in terms of education policy across all the various levels. But I suppose one of the challenges in the years ahead might be if there's increasing traction on the proposed referendums and they were to happen, I suppose the question arises as what the proposals will be around, you know, what that looks like in the far end of. So in the event that there is constitutional change on the island, um, and bearing in mind this is probably a completely unfair question uh, that we could talk about for the rest of the week, but if we were, were moving to more integrated systems, across primary, secondary, further and higher, um, you know, what sort of challenges would that face, you know, to moving to a more integrated system across the island in the event that that the constitutional change actually takes place? Yeah. Um, in the event that were to happen, um, I think universities probably wouldn't have huge issues here. I suppose there's funding, things like that, and the different funding streams they have coming in. Um, I think secondary is where there would be a huge problem. We have significant segregation here by academic selection that we've talked about, also by religious denomination. In the South, there is segregation on different bases. They, they talk in the South about active choice. And Emer Smith, my colleague in this report, she has wrote extensively on this. So I think the majority of young people in the South do not go to their nearest school when they switch from primary to secondary. So it's not maybe the secondary grammar system we have in the North. But there are different school types and different management types of schools in the Republic as well. So I think that's where we would see, that's where there would be greater um, difficulty for an integrated all-island education system. Um, I think we would need to see more integration north and south of our own systems long before you could be talking about integrating across the two jurisdictions. Um, In primary, I think it wouldn't be as bad I think um, some of the, some border primary schools, you know, small sort of countryside primary schools around the border would have quite good links with their neighbours or their counterparts on the other side of the border. But definitely a secondary where there is, you know, gender splits, academic selection splits, religious split, it definitely would be much, much trickier. That, that's really, again, just very, very helpful and interesting to, because you almost sense that that that's a piece of work that um, you know would be really really fascinating to to look at what the different models would be for if that were to to be the case. I suppose it takes on to the related question really that it's a bit like the shared island initiative work. R- rarely a week goes by at the minute without some new initiative, some new funding, uh, comment piece articles, books on the constitutional question and the constitutional future of the island. Just wonder from your own perspective, you know, why you think this is happening. You know, what has changed in the last few years to generate this, what, what does seem to be more and more work, work like your own, that is now being done that maybe wasn't done before? Absolutely, Colin. Um, 
And as you know, like 10 years ago, this just would not have been happening, whether in economics in my area, education, or in the sort of work you do. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons, a variety of smaller reasons. You know, as we're talking now, the census results on the demographics are due out tomorrow morning. And there's been a lot of chat about that and how that maybe plays into the discussion. But I think the huge number one thing has been Brexit. Pre-Brexit, this just didn't happen. Once in a while, somebody came out and maybe mentioned it and it there was a bit of chat for a while in the papers and Twitter and then it just sort of petered out. But since Brexit, this has just been, as you say, it's not even weekly. Every single day, if you open the paper or you're listening to the radio shows during the day or the panel shows on BBC or wherever at night, it is the, it's up there with one of the most important topics at the minute. And I've also noticed when we talk about other important topics, it somehow comes back to this now. You know, everything's starting to feed into it. It definitely has picked up, but it, it seems to be Brexit um, is the main driver, in my opinion. You know, when I was studying my undergrad economics, I didn't think this would be the sort of work, you know, this didn't exist. We didn't do a module on this sort of stuff because it wasn't happening. Um, I think it's great. And I think regardless of your opinion and constitutional change, that this research is happening is hugely, hugely important for the North. As I said at the beginning, there is a dearth of literature. So, to be understanding our education system better is doing nobody any harm. We can all benefit from this. You know, my three nieces have started P1 this year. I'd love to see there being improvements made that there weren't as many early school leavers or there weren't as many um, young people coming out with low levels of educational qualifications. Um, and it's the same with sort of work. There's work going on on health, on productivity. All these things will benefit us. And up until now, or the last sort of, I suppose, 2016 on, you know, my PhD is in economic inactivity. This is an area that is consistently included with the programme for government as an area that needs improved or an area that they want to lower rates of people not on work because of sickness or whatever. But how are policymakers meant to do that without evidence to back up what they're doing? And that's essentially what's been happening. So this research, whether you look at it in a constitutional future frame, even just in terms of the status quo, this will benefit the people on the island that this work and this research is being done that it's a- absolutely clear isn't it that this is essential work in in the here and now in terms of and if it keeps that... me in a job all the better <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. so really really valuable work and it, one of the things that's really striking as well about the discussion is the sort of bureaucratic language of preparation and planning seems to dominate much of the discussion that people want to sort of prepare well. So that raises the question of whether enough's been done, but also, you know, interestingly to the role of the ESRI, you know, where you are, where you work, what role the ESRI might have in doing precisely the sort of work that that we're talking about here today. Yep. Um, So as we both are well aware, future constitutional change in this island is going to be and is a complex and very contentious issue. Um, And as such, there's a real need for an evidence-based approach to any debate or discussion around it. There's not room here for we think or we would like. It is going to have to be evidence-based discussions, really, when something is this contentious. Um, And I think that's where the Institute comes in as an independent think tank. That's what we do. We provide evidence on a range of economic and social issues and it is hugely varied what we do in the Institute. Um, As the debate, I suppose, or the discussion is ongoing, some of the key issues have always been around an all-island approach to education, which is what we're looking at here, health, 
industrial policy, how businesses will work, and in particular tax and the welfare systems, pensions has come up time and time again, and what they will look like across uh, United Ireland. So these are key things that need to be teased out and disentangled. And voters, should there be a referendum, which there may or may not be, um, would need and would want to be clued in and know what's really going on and how their lives would be affected moving forward. Um, so I think that's where we come in and doing this systematic, comprehensive reviews, north and south. And it's important, like, the work we do is peer-reviewed, so it's not just what we think or what we would like to think. It's all peer-reviewed by our colleagues in the Institute and by external people. A lot of the work we do is published in peer-reviewed journals. So that's, you know, people who in England or London or America. Um, so that's where we need to be coming from in terms of this discussion, in my opinion. Um, and then we've seen what happened in the aftermath of Brexit. There was no evidence base. There was no robust research. And people voted on thoughts and feelings and talking about it and... Now look at what's happened. We're six and a half years down the line. Then we hear people saying, oh, if I knew this, I wouldn't have voted that way and vice versa. So um, I just think robust research is the way to go. And the Institute, given that's what we do, um, that's the role we play there. So we're building up an evidence base for this sort of whole process of planning and preparing for the here and now, but also for potential futures as, as well, whatever they might be. So the current Irish government has used the language of shared island and, you know, the funding initiatives around that and that whole conceptual framework. I just wonder what your view of the various shared island initiatives is. Is it a helpful way really of considering the different relationships on the island now and possibly in the future as well? Absolutely. I think so. Um, I think given the contentiousness of the subject at hand, um, it's a sort of fair way of dealing with it. Um, as I said, that research is benefiting everybody, you know, in the here and now separately and as an island. And, you know, we do live in a shared island, the likes of things like health. I think we would all rather our family members who needed a heart operation going to Dundalk or Drogheda than going to London with, you know, when you know so many people can go with you and the hassle that causes. So I do think that is a helpful framework for looking at it. And I do I think it's important to remember that this also feeds into the here and now, as you say, the here and now is a good way of looking at it. Um, the education report is a prime example. The North, regardless of what goes on in the South, can benefit from that research. So it doesn't have to be about constitutional change. You know, you can support the status quo and also see how the likes of this work and the Shared Island Initiative can benefit our society. Absolutely. And, you know, really, hopefully we'll expand and be more ambitious in the future as well. And, and you know, with, with more funding to, to, to support that, you know, whatever the eventual choice that people make or whether a referendum takes place. Um, just really, you'll be delighted to hear <laughs> coming to the end of uh, the, the the podcast. But thinking of, about the future and maybe predictions and all of that, but really think about your hopes for the future. If you, you know, you, you've done the work, you've thought about this in, in, in real depth. Um, what are your hopes for education policy, north and south on the island in uh, the decade ahead? What would you like to see happen as a consequence of the sort of work that you're doing now? Absolutely. Um, so when I went into academia, I always wanted to be doing work that people were reading. 
And you know, people talk about articles and stuff and say the only people that reads them are the authors and editors of journals and nobody else sees it. It goes behind a paywall. So that we've done, like we launched this in April and I've been, spoke to several groups, several forums and, you know, the Irish government's been really engaged. People have stopped me at events to say, oh, I read the education report. So it's great that people are reading it, um, which is a step ahead of some research that we do already. But it really, it would be great to be seeing this work taken into policy, particularly here in the North. Like we're seeing these huge differences in educational attainment, really high rates of early school leaving. And it's not just compared to Ireland. It's also compared to Scotland, you know, a region that we are kind of comparable with. Um, So I do, I hope that it's taken into account. DASH is the huge thing. You know, we're seeing just down the road that this programme works great. We have one that isn't working so great. Can we try and learn from that? And hopefully that's something that maybe will happen or a discussion that starts to happen anyway. Um, Academic selection come up. I know that's a contentious issue to some degree in the North. It come up time and time again. And the ramifications that has for children's well-being, um, segregating them at that age, you know, children that don't pass the 11 or what, what was the 11 plus when I was doing it, um, feeling like they're failing at such a young age, you know, it really, on an individual level, isn't good. And then it's perpetuating social inequality. We're working now on a piece and we're seeing that really there's a lot more educational mobility in the South than there is in the North. And that's obviously because of the lack of targeted interventions for pe- for young people and because of academic selection. And I feel like a bit of a hypocrite as somebody who did the 11 plus and went to a grammar school, but looking at it now from a different perspective um I do think there's there's more work to be done in that area I know they get rid of the 11 plus but it's just it's just shifted um I also think there needs to be a reassessment as I said of the status of further education within our society and we all know now there like there's a lack of mechanics or you hear people regularly complaining about trying to get a plumber to to fix a tiny thing um, so we really do need these. And in the report, when we looked at those wage premiums, as I said, we don't see the big difference to the same extent at post-secondary. So I think in particular in the North, we do have a demand for further educational qualifications. And our young people don't seem, they're either dropping out of school too early or they're going straight on to HE. And um, there's issues around that. So I think that's an area, the, in the South, they are bringing the FE application system within the HE application system. So it'll all be in one as one way of sort of trying to deal with this. But I think there's a social stigma there and I think that takes a sort of wider, there's more to be done in that area and sort of rectifying that. Um, so I do hope, I'm just glad people are reading it. And if we could see some, if we could see the politicians in the North talking about it now, or some more engagement on it, it would be great. Um, we're actually holding an event for it or next month. So hopefully we'll see more engagement then. Well, th- thank you so much, Anne. Thoroughly recommend the report. It's an outstanding uh, piece of work and we commend the authors for it. There's so much learning that can be done on the island now and that focus, determined focus on an evidence-based framework for doing the preparatory work for whatever happens in the future as well in that shared island context so thank you so much for for joining the podcast today wish you all the very best 
in your ongoing work and hope very much you'll be build on it, building on it and they'll come back talk to us again in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Anne Devlin. Thank you so much Thank for you. having me.